an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. This is episode 81. I'm back from a short summer break and boy, do I have a show for you today. My guest is Jeff Charlotte. Jeff is a New York Times bestselling author of six books, including, most importantly for this conversation, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which came out in 2008, and C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, which came out in 2010. For years now, almost since the beginning of this podcast, I've wanted to have Jeff on the show to talk about the bombshell reporting that he did in these two books. And now, on Friday, August 9, Netflix is releasing a five-part series called The Family, based on Jeff's research and in-depth reporting over 15 years ago. I'm such a fan of history, and my life has been embedded in the world of religion, and this story that Jeff has told that is now being shared via Netflix is over 80 years in the making. It's a story of fundamentalist Christianity's alliance with politics at the highest level. It is precisely the marriage of church and state that many of us work day in and day out to prevent. And it's not just about American power. The relationships that you will hear about in this conversation and that you will learn about in Jeff's books and the Netflix series are international in scope and span virtually the entire 20th century up to the present day. As Jeff often says, it's a secret hiding in plain sight. If you've ever thought to yourself that the wall of separation between church and state is getting higher and stronger, that there are much better protections today than there were a few decades ago, I think you will discover here that the exact opposite is true. The wall of separation between church and state has never been shakier, and there's been an intentional designed effort to undermine it for 80 years. I'm grateful to the folks at Netflix for giving me the opportunity to screen the five-part series before it was available to the public so that I could be prepared to have this conversation with Jeff And I'm excited for you all to see that production just as soon as you can. As always, this podcast is made possible by the patrons of the show who contribute monthly in any amount to make this podcast and the rest of the work I do with Life After God possible. Since the last episode, quite a few new patrons have come on board to support this work. So I want to give a quick shout out to them. They are Garrett, Mark, Brian, Charlie, Coven, Alexis, Jackson, Wendy, Nathan, App, Lauren, Kat, Ed, Chris, Jen, Nicole, Mitchell, Angie, Carl, and Kelly. Thank you so much for your support for Life After God. Even if it's just a small amount, you're doing more good than you probably realize. If you'd like to join the community that makes this podcast happen, please visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash life after God. 
And you can make any size monthly contribution from $1 a month up to whatever the podcast is worth to you. At $1 per month, you'll have access to my private blog where I share things that are on my mind that I'd sometimes rather not reveal to the whole world. For $5 a month, you'll be invited to join the private Facebook group where we discuss the things I share on the podcast and a lot more. If you'd like to write to me and tell me what this podcast means to you or share your personal story, please do it. You can write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I'll always get your permission before sharing anything publicly, but sometimes uh, it's fun to be able to share the stories that I hear about via email and other ways that folks reach out to me. And uh, if you'd like me to share your story, if you'd like, just like for me to know what's up with you, I'd love to hear from you. Again, that's ryan at lifeaftergod.org. So now without any further delay, here is my conversation with Jeff Charlotte. Jeff Charlotte, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I've been a fan of your work, um, read your first book, The Family, uh, probably two years after it came out. A clergy colleague of mine referred uh, me to it, and uh, I was clergy back in those days, and um, just, I mean, it just blew my mind, and I wanted everyone to know about this, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of a tough sell to get everyone to read a 350, 400-page book. So uh, I'm really excited that on the eve of the release of the Netflix series, The Family, um, that I'm, we're able to have this this conversation. It must be a, sort of a surreal experience seeing 10 years later the the vision of your, your book come to life. It is. It's very strange. You know, I, I did... I wrote the the family. I started in two thousand three, mm. two thousand two. I think I I lived with the organization. Two thousand three, I published an article in Harper's and worked for years on that book. Published it in two thousand eight. Published an, a, a follow up book called C Street, two thousand ten. And then I thought I was done. I have put in my time <laughs> on American fundamentalism. I have done my bit for bringing sunlight to this, um, but I was not done. Or, or American fundamentalism was not done with me. And so here we are again in 2019 uh, <laughs> with uh, Netflix yeah. uh, bringing it all back into the, the public eye. Well, I want to get into a little bit more of the, the background for those that perhaps are completely new to this. Um, but before we do, and maybe this sort of actually dovetails into getting into the background, uh, usually my guests are either former Christians or former something. They might still be Christians, but they're maybe former fundamentalists or former Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. And we're talking about their sort of religious and spiritual and theological evolution from where they were to where they are today. So I kind of wanted to start in the same place with you. Like, how did you grow up and, as it relates to religion and the church? And and I guess sort of lead us into um, your experience at Ivanwald, because I know you said you were still sort of in a searching phase when you uh, when you stumbled stumbled into Ivanwald. Yeah, that's a great question because it's also it's the bridge between the books and the TV series. I don't talk about really my own spiritual development in the books, but it does become a part of the Netflix series. It, this began. Uh, I, I grew up, I like to say, and as many churches, temples. 
compounds as my mother had friends. My mother, who was sort of uh, a hippie and was interested in all sorts of religions and especially the music. So we kind of followed the music. Wherever there was good music, we went and, and checked it out. And um, that was my exposure. And I never really thought of the idea of committing to any one thing. And it wasn't asked to. Uh, I'm a Jew as well. My father is Jewish and I'm a Jew. Um, uh, an agnostic Jew, but a Jew nonetheless. But uh, then when my uh, mother was in her late 40s and I was 16, uh, she began dying of breast cancer. And as she lay dying, she would ask for people to come and pray with her. And all sorts of people. She had a lot of friends. And so there would be, uh, she had evangelical friends and mainline Protestant friends and Catholic friends and Jewish friends and Muslim friends and Buddhist friends and Hindu friends um, <laughs> and and some more uh, eclectic traditions. Um, and, you know, I was a 16-year-old kid and I noticed uh a distinction in the way they prayed, a broad, you know, this is a broad generalization. There were those who prayed for salvation and there were those who prayed for deliverance. What my mother wanted was deliverance. Hmm. She wasn't looking for a reward in the afterlife. She wanted to live. She wanted to yeah. stay alive. She wanted to see her son graduate from high school. And I, but those who prayed for salvation with the best of intentions weren't really listening to my mother. And so that got me interested in this question of religion hmm. and um which became the subject of my first book i wrote with a friend peter manso it's called killing the buddha which is not a buddha anti-buddhist thing but it comes from an old buddhist story and we just used it as our guide to traveling around and exploring the varieties of religious experience in the united states one of which ended up being um uh this house called Ivanwald for young men who were being groomed for future leadership in a sort of somewhat secretive um, Christian in the most general sense, although the inner circle rejects that term. Um, it's sort of a uh, an elite mm. Christian fundamentalist organization called the Fellowship or internally the family. And uh, that's how I came to this story that would define so many years of my life looking not just at individual experiences, but how the fellowship and the family shapes politics in the United States and abroad. It's truly an international organization, the oldest, most influential, and most secretive Christian conservative organization in Washington. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in the sense that, I mean, and you, you explain both in the book and in the Netflix series that you didn't come to Ivanwald as an investigative reporter, though you were already an author by that point. You you were there at the invitation of a good friend of yours, isn't that right? Yeah. So I was working. I was working on this book about varieties of religious experience, and uh, an old friend um, who is a conservative Christian herself um, uh, said, "You know, I was living in New York. This was right after nine eleven." And she said her brother, whom in the book I call Zeke, mm -hmm. it's the only name I changed, um, uh, Zeke was in town and the family was worried about him. He had sort of dropped out of his life and moved to Arlington, Virginia, right outside of Washington. And they couldn't tell what he was involved in. And it wasn't 
the kind of Christianity that they were familiar with. And I met Zeke, and I had known him for years. And to be honest, I had never liked him. He'd never liked me. I dated his sister in college. <laughs> I was a Jew. He was an anti-Semite. Not a good combination. No. And he, he right away starts um, by apologizing for all that. And in so many ways, he's a much kinder more thoughtful person. So I'm thinking whatever he's involved in is terrific. <laughs> and I ask him what he's doing in New York after 9-11. And he says, I'm here to survey the ruins of secularism. And that's how he understood what happened on 9-11. Mm. And he started telling me about this movement he was involved with. And it was really the part he was telling me about was just this group of young men living together, this fellowship in Christ. But they they did some things that were a little more unusual. They had lots of connections to politicians, and they would go and they would serve political leaders. And I just didn't understand it. And I, he said he didn't even want to be called a Christian, just mm. a follower of Jesus. I wasn't as familiar with evangelical, sort of the broad scale scope of evangelical vernacular. And I wasn't really interested I wasn't interested in the Christian right at all. Um, I wasn't much interested in evangelicalism, to be honest. Um, and uh, but I said, sure, hmm. that's what I was doing back then. If you invited me to your to your church, your your retreat, your temple, your synagogue, your mosque, I would go. Hmm. And I went and encountered. After a year of traveling through some unusual religious communities in the United States, the Baba Lovers and South Carolina, cowboy churches in Texas, um, uh, Santeria in mm. uh, Miami. Um, uh, you know, this was this suburban, the suburban enclave of young upper class preppy men was the most unusual religious experience <laughs> I'd had. And so I decided to stick around. Wow, that's fascinating. And I was thinking as I was watching um, the the Netflix series that it hit me that it, your experience almost is a mirror image opposite of my experience in the sense that I was clergy for 20 years in uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a sort of American-born sect of uh, you know, sure. conservative Christianity, I guess. And and I, in 2013, was uh, let go from the denomination for a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with my inability to maintain my belief in the doctrines and welcoming gay and lesbian and trans individuals to my church and and uh, they had had enough of me, and so I left. And then in 2014, I did a year without God, what I called a year without God. And I basically, um, you know, you said when someone would um, tell you something or or offer you an experience of a religion of their of their type of religion, you would say yes. That was kind of your like almost like improv, where you just sort of say yes to that invitation. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. And then I, but I was doing the the same thing only with like. I was say, basically saying no. I was basically saying, I'm going to explore atheism. I'm going to go where atheists go. I'm going to talk with atheists. I'm going to see what atheists value and what they care about and how, what they talk about. And um, so that was kind of my my experience. Didn't take me to quite uh, as interesting of places as, as you went. But um, 
so this is so fascinating to me because to jump way ahead now to to the Trump era, I feel like one of the big questions out there about Donald Trump and his overwhelming support in the evangelical community is this sort of bafflement about how evangelicals could support people like him or like Roy Moore, who by you know all estimations is a very sketchy guy. Um, and how many dozens now, probably a close to two dozen women have accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. And, you know, people are saying, like, how can evangelicals, this party of family values, uh, embrace these troglodytes, these just horrible people? And over and over again, you document these individuals on the far right in the, in the political world saying things like, uh, God uses the corrupt things of the world to accomplish his perfect ends. Um, is, do you see the Donald Trump phenomenon through, that, through those lenses? Is that an accurate explanation, do you think, for how we get to where we are today? Well, look, the, the family, the fellowship is, is not, it, it, is, it is at the heart of American power. So let, me, let me sort of back up and give you sort of a, a thumbnail history of the organization. This begins in 1935 when the founder, Abraham Baridi, um, has a vision from God. He believes that God tells him that Christianity has been getting it wrong for nearly 2,000 years um, by focusing on the poor and the suffering and the down and out, and that what God really wants him to do is to focus on those who he calls the up and out, hmm. the elite, the powerful, the key men, people in positions of power who uh, can actually bring about the kingdom. Uh, on earth. And for Abram, this comes out of, this is the middle of the 1930s. This is, you know, the Great Depression. And and Abram has a sort of a holy terror of labor unions, hmm. which he sees as satanic. Uh, it begins as this anti-labor organization. He gets together with a group of wealthy businessmen. They agree to elect, starts out in Seattle, Washington. They agree to elect a mayor of Seattle, and then they elect him governor. And they choose a man who's going to crush very violently and brutally organized labor. And on that strength, they end up moving to Washington, D.C. and organizing congressmen. And all along, their theology is one of more power for the powerful. If if you're in a position of power, it's because God puts you there. God is using you as a tool. Whether you're a good person, bad person, doesn't matter. I mean, mm. there's an element of Calvinism in this. Um, but there's something darker and, and more twisted. When I was staying at Ivanwald, one day, one of the leaders of the organization, a man named David Coe, uh, came around to talk to the young men and give them a lesson. And he wanted to talk about King David. Mm. And he says, well, you know, why do we revere King David? And so the young guy is like, well, he's a great hero. And David Coe says, well, no, King David, you know, um, that whole thing with uh, Bathsheba, not so good. You know, King David covets the wife of uh, his, uh, his, one of his chief soldiers. Um, and then depending on your scriptural interpretation, seduces her or rapes her and arranges for her husband to be put in a position where he'll be killed. This is not good stuff, right? So why? <laughs> not at all. Why do we like him? Um, and so the answer, you know, according to David Coe, is as simple as this. He's chosen. He's mm. chosen by God. And David Coe turns to one of the other young men and he says, uh, suppose I hear you rape three little girls. Mm. Think about the specificity of his imagination. Right. It's even creepy. Yeah. Um, he says, what, would I, what do you think I would think of you? And this young guy being a human being says, you would think I'm, I'm terrible. He says, no, not at all. 
just because you're chosen. You're here because you're chosen. Mm. So it's not my place to judge you. God gives us this tool. You take that theology, you apply that to politics. Um, first in the United States, working with political leaders, they knew were not devout men. And then as time went on, I mean, you go back into the deep history after World War II, what they did was they went to Germany and they started recruiting former Nazis and leading war criminals. And they basically said, if you're willing to switch out the Fuhrer for the father, hmm. um, we're willing to whitewash your sins. Um, they weren't quite fascist, but they admired that authoritarianism. That became the model time and time again overseas. And if your listeners have, you know, sort of any sense of 20th century Cold War history, these are some chilling names. Yeah. Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. Sahardo killed perhaps a million of his fellow citizens in Indonesia. These were their clients. Yeah. These were those whom they felt God had chosen. So in comparison to that, Donald Trump, yeah. Donald Trump's easy. Um, and, and more than that, Donald Trump is the model that they, that his, his impiety is proof that he's chosen by God. Right. Um, there's a parable, Doug Coe, David Coe's father, the longtime leader of the organization, goes, he says, he says, you know, God, uh, it wasn't about reaching out to the sheep. Um, it's actually about uh, reaching out to the wolves. Oh, yeah. He says, and if, if you can go to the wolf and if you can find the leader of the wolf pack, the wolf king, and you can say to him, I bring even a greater strength than your own. And if you will accept this strength, this is what they're thinking of as Jesus. Hmm. Um, think of how much power you have. This is their understanding. That's the sort of this transactional understanding. And in this scenario, Trump is the wolf king. Yeah. The wolf king to whom they have tied themselves. Yeah, I mean, I thought one of the most chilling parts of the book was the part where you document the whole connection to Suarto in, in um, um, Indonesia. Indonesia. And, you know, yeah. if uh, if folks, you know, haven't seen the, the act of killing, the documentary, The Act of Killing, um, oh. I mean, if you compare this five-part Netflix series with the documentary, The Act of Killing, and just meditate on the fact that these two institutions uh are related to each other it's just almost more than i can get my brain around um so obviously this involves a highly selective reading of the bible and you you point out how they really don't care about the bible that much really what it is is the gospels but then i'm listening to this again through the netflix series and i'm thinking it's not even just the gospels because in the gospels jesus talks plenty about selling all of your possessions and giving them to the poor and you know, forgiving people and, you know, turning to uh, the downcast in society, healing lepers and, you know, touching the untouchable. And and it seems like they really have created a, a theology that privileges power. But then it's not even just power because there are people in power that don't agree with their agenda, whatever that is. And so it's... if. It seems like a kind of a circular reasoning, like, who does God choose? Well, how do we know who's God's chosen are? Well, it's the people who are in power because God puts people in power. So when they fall from power, are they not chosen anymore? Or are the progress, like, was Bernie Sanders also chosen? Or he's a, you know, he's pretty progressive, not really on board with the family's agenda. So even within the power matrix, there is it still seems highly selective about who they would consider chosen. 
we've got to look back at their roots. I mean, this is an organization that begins with a deep, deep fear of communism, right? Uh, and admiration of of fascism. Some of the early founders were explicit. I'm not using a pejorative sense. They were fascists. They called themselves fascists. Not all of them were. Um, and you know, anti labor, and that's where they lined up. They lined up. They also saw they they embraced something that they call biblical capitalism. This idea that capitalism, in particular, this sort of laissez-faire American-style capitalism, um, is somehow uh, biblically ordained. And when I was living in Ivanwald, we would have these sort of strange economics lessons and uh, this kind of biblical capitalism. So yeah, that's who they line up with. That said, I know. You know, one of the ways they think of these mentioned Bernie Sanders, they'll say we work with power where we can build new power where we can. They are willing to work with anybody. Now, what you have to do, how you have to contort yourself Mm. to work with them, uh, if you're willing to deal. And that's, you know, an example I give in the book is that of um, a Somali dictator named Saad Bari. Saad Bari was an unlikely prospect for American evangelicalism. He described himself as a Quranic Marxist. Uh, <laughs> he commissioned uh, triple portraits of himself to hang around the nation with himself in the middle, Muhammad on one side and Marx on the other. Wow. Um, he, <laughs> Somalia was a Soviet client state until Soviet, the Soviet Union dropped them. And uh, he needed a new patron. And Senator Chuck Grassley, who is still a serving senator from Iowa, Republican senator, this is is back in the 80s, along with uh, the then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went and visited with him. And basically, they made a deal. They said, if you're willing to pray to Jesus, um, we're willing to intercede on your behalf. And uh, Sadbari is fascinating because he's one of the few dictators who really put it bluntly and explicitly. He says, yeah. (laughs) He says, I'll make this deal, and here's what I want in return. He says, I want military aid. He says, I want an audience with the president, and I want uh, a sort of a hands-off policy while I crush uh, this rebel group uh, in the north. Um, And the fellowship more or less said, done, done, and done, and it was. And he crushed the rebel group in the north, the south, the west, and the east. He laid biblical waste to his country. Wow. Listeners, you know that story, Black Hawk Down? Yeah. That's what happened to Somalia. It got destroyed, and it got destroyed with U.S. support facilitated by this organization. Um, So, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. They're willing to work with you. And it's not like they're looking to destroy the world. They're just going to look aside. They don't care if you join this 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 international network of leaders chosen by God, as they said. Now, if Bernie Sanders were to become president and wanted to to sign on, they would make room. I don't <laughs> see that happening. So what I you know I find myself both when I read the book and when I watched the series, asking myself, so what's the end game here? Like, what do they want? I mean, they already. Like Doug Coe, um, who passed away a couple years ago, and I want to ask you like where they're at in his absence now. But um, before we get to that, like so, so Doug's this humble guy by everybody's estimation. Everybody can't, you know, nobody can invoke his name without talking about what a kind and gentle and humble man he is. And so it's not about Doug, right? Doug's agenda was not about himself being put up on a pedestal or having a statue erected in his image later after he died or whatever. Um, 
I, I, I'm sort of persuaded almost that Doug was sincerely believing that Jesus wanted him to do this stuff, but not everybody like Sam Brownback and Tom Coburn and these guys like they they didn't really think, did they, that this was Jesus will? I mean, what does it money that they want? I mean, they have power already. Maybe they want more power, but what, like in what form, like why, why is it important for us to be allied with strong, you know, like violent dictators around the world? I mean, I, I, the way I think about the fellowship and the Christian right writ large too, is I think that we too often make the mistake of asking what they want instead of looking at the world we live in. Um, This is the world that they had a huge hand in shaping. We talk about organized labor. The United States is the only developed nation in the world without powerful organized labor. Mm. They did that. That was their work. Um, When we think about... uh, you know, when we think about the brutality of American capitalism, the inequality, mm. uh, I don't want to say that uh, the fellowship or the Christian right uh, writ large did that alone, but they, they're they sort of the religious wing of that trans- transformation. Uh, they're into living with what is, according to a Christian right leader named Rob Shank, who, who greatly admires oh, yeah. them. He wishes he had the, the pull they had. He, he is just a few congressmen he advises. They have quite a few. It's a religion of the status quo. Um, it's a religion of empire. So when we think about, if you look around this world and if you look at the United States and you say, hey, look, I think everything's more or less in pretty good shape, yeah. then you have no issue with them. But if you're wondering how in this democracy do we, how do we wind up with such inequality? Uh, why, uh why is Christianity so often recruited for ends that seem directly at odds with uh, its core values? Then we start looking to the fellowship. And then we start also, and I think this is really important. And I'm kind of fascinated, you know, because uh, if if the documentary makes Doug Coe seem like a good, a good guy, then I'm not sure if we've done our work. I mean, Doug Coe was the man who... Uh, when he took over the fellowship at the end of the 60s, he says it's time to submerge our public image. He's the guy who decided to make it secret. He's the guy who decided to start calling it the Christian mafia. He is the guy who yeah. introduced as a model for fellowship. And uh, we have uh, this in the, in the series talking about, he says, look at the great friendship between Hitler, Goebbels, and, and a Himmler. Himmler he, says, yeah. now that, he says, that was a, that was a, a bond. That's what we want. He says, look at the discipline that Mao had uh, from his people. He said, Mao had his people chopping off their own mother's heads. Yep. He says, that's strength. That's what we want. That he reduced the whole Christian message to one word, strength. Hmm. And they look for a strong man. He is sincere in this belief. He is sincere in this belief. Um, and I find that all the more terrifying. Yeah, it really it really is terrifying. He you know, he doesn't come across as a good man to me. I I do think he plays the game very well and he he's, you know, this kind civil, you know. This is why I find so empty appeals to civility, especially, you know, in the current crisis that we find ourselves in in the United States and um, you know, you you have 
I mean, basically what Doug did was to say, we're going to cloak all of this that we're doing in a garb of civility and everybody's going to just think we're lovely people. Um, and it, it is really remarkable how many people have kissed the ring. Um, I, I'm watching this unfold again, you know, on, on the documentary and thinking, okay, it makes sense to me that, you know, Nixon would be a part of this, Eisenhower. Uh, it makes sense that, you know, the Bushes would be a part of it. But then there's, um, I mean, it even sort of makes sense to me that J- JFK would be part of it. But but it kind of surprises me that someone like Jimmy Carter would, in spite of his religiosity, he always seemed more of the uh, the first version of Abram Verady, you know, ministering to the poor. Um, and then Obama, of course, you know, and Hillary Clinton, both Clintons. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say those people. I mean, uh, um, Carter was more involved. Um, but, you know, they're not necessarily seeing the full thing. Doug Coe was fond of saying that the National Prayer Breakfast, at which every president has appeared, he said, it's only one-tenth of one uh, percent of what we're really doing. Mm. He says, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And for a lot of politicians, it goes no further. They use the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, uh, and they say, look, the National Prayer Breakfast can be ecumenical. There's an internal planning document that says anything can happen. The Koran can be read, but Jesus is there. He's infiltrating the world. It's a sectarian event that has just blasted through the walls between church and state. Yeah. And he says what's really happening there is it's a recruiting device to bring uh, men. And it is very, very male-focused. Uh, they believe in male headship, that, that, that conservative evangelical idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, into these small uh, prayer cells where they can, quote, meet Jesus man to man, right? So o- Obama didn't join a small prayer cell. And, uh, you know, as I write in the book, Hillary Clinton, you know, in her own memoir, she describes yeah. uh, Doug Coe as a spiritual mentor. Um, that's reflecting no secret stealth fundamentalism on the heart of part of Hillary Clinton, but a reality that this group has been around long enough that, uh, in, in essence, if you want to do religion in Washington, you're going through the fellowship. Um, and more than uh, that, you basically say you have to do religion in Washington. Like, you know, what, what this sounds to me like is if you don't do religion, and this could be an explanation, my, my co non-religionists, you might say, in the atheist community are always sort of puzzling over why no one will claim atheism. Even those that we suspect might be um, non-believers are really reticent to say so in, in stark terms. Is it essential to be a part of this religious movement in order to be at the top of the game, to be president of the United States or a, or a top senator? Yeah. Oh, I think so. And I mean, and here's where we really see, you know, the power of symbolism. Look, you know, the fact that we have under God and our money and our pledge and so on, both of which, were, by the way, were, were uh, fellowship initiatives back in the 1950s. Mm. Uh, the fact that we have the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, you know, we have an event every year where the President of the United States, all of Congress, the Supreme Court, and leaders from all over the world come together to sanctify the nation to Jesus. <laughs> when they first... I mean, that's, yes. So, so suddenly that becomes a sort of generic thing. Most people believe that it's a public event. 
if you're in the press and you want to RSVP, you do it through the White House press office. Your invitation comes on congressional letterhead. Yeah. No one knows that it's organized by this private sectarian group. When they proposed it in 1953, Eisenhower said, just like Truman and FDR before him said, not a chance. We have this thing called the First Amendment here. But yeah. Eisenhower owed political favors, particularly to Billy Graham, who was very involved with the fellowship and who had sort of organized uh, Southern Democrats to vote for a Republican, Eisenhower. And he said, okay, I'll go, but no press. Because he mm. knew he was crossing the line. He went, it, and the fellowship understood what it was. One time it becomes, you know, you create a tradition, it doesn't go away. Now yeah. every president has to go. Who is the president who's going to say, I'm not going to the national prayer breakfast? Who is the president? It'd be one thing if you're maybe not devout, but the president is going to come out and say, I'm against God. It's never going to happen. That was going to ask you so that. They, what would happen if someone said, or like, like, let's say Bernie Sanders, you know, like, let's say he's, you know, by all estimations, a atheist or an agnostic Jew. So he's not Christian in the first place. And he's probably not, you know, a, uh, you know, robust theist either. So what if he yeah. says, you know what, this is not right. I'm not going. What would happen? Uh, I think it would hurt him politically. I mean, and and the reality is, I think most politicians look at this and they say, look, you know, nah, maybe this isn't so great. Yeah, we're supposed to have separation of church and state, but what does it hurt? What's the right? harm? Yeah. Yeah, what's the harm? And and so then they lend their clout. Well, now you look at the National Prayer Breakfast. It's one day in February. Well, it's actually, it's a week-long event. It's a mm. lobbying event. There's all sorts of spinoff organizations. New York Times has done some good reporting on this just in the last year about um, the way it uses a lobbying event. And the story we tell in uh, the series is about how the Russian agent Maria Putina, yep. with the help of the fellowship's current leadership, used the prayer breakfast. That's She's not subverting the prayer breakfast. She's using it exactly the way it was meant to be used. So now the president shows up. Trump shows up. He doesn't really care about this thing and so on. But no. look, uh, the fellowship is going around the State Department, much of the state of this consternation. They can get you 10 minutes with the president of the United States. That's access. That's power. And because they can do that, you're going to take their phone calls. Um, you see this also reflected in who comes from around the world to this wonderful ecumenical prayer breakfast? Who leads these foreign delegations? More often than not, it's the defense minister. And the reason they're in the defense minister is because uh, uh, the American uh, defense industry holds special prayer meetings at the prayer <laughs> breakfast, as does the oil industry. Yeah. You know, these great, great, great godly fields of endeavor. <laughs> Institutions, um, yeah. Exactly. So uh, you, you you create an expectation um, and it can be, you can just keep pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. Senator Jim Inhofe, a very conservative uh, senator from Oklahoma, uh, the man who's one of his early campaigns coined the phrase God, gays, and guns. Yeah. Uh, he was for two of them and against one. Uh, <laughs> um, he, you know, the Oklahoma papers actually thought they thought they had a big scoop when they discovered that he had been traveling um, around Africa. He has a special heart for Africa and its oil. Um, and uh, he had been doing so for the fellowship, for the family, um, but he'd do, been doing so on the taxpayer's dime. 
we had been paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for him to go. And he's very upfront. He says, I go to them. You know, he talks business. He talks um, defense contracts. He talks oil and he talks Jesus. And he does it on the taxpayer dime. What did Oklahoma do? They reelected him. Yeah. You know, I mean, and the interesting thing is, I think some people sort of imagine that America is getting more progressive, that, that the old time religion, so many of these things are unimaginable 50 yeah. years ago, 100 years ago. It's sliding more and more toward a theocentric uh, and unfortunately authoritarian politics. In the series, uh, you you we explore the I can't remember. You'll you'll be able to help me here. The the main the the congressman who goes to Uganda and sort of stokes the um, you know the death penalty bill for gays in in Uganda, and he ends up being indicted, right, and going to jail for a few months. Well, that's a couple. That's, <laughs> there's so many uh, great characters in the fellowship. It's a couple different guys. Um, uh, in Uganda, there was something called, uh, known as the kill the gays bit, which is right. exactly what it sounds, death penalty for homosexuality. Um, and that was uh, uh, launched by the fellowship's prayer cell. They have they have prayer cells in the sort of the parliaments of most countries. And a, a, a legislator named uh, David Bahadi, um, who considered um, uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell and uh, former Senator John Ensign sort of mentors, um, and uh, uh, so that was Uganda. You're referring to a, a, another peach uh, named uh, uh, <laughs> former Congressman Mark Siljander. Yes. Who was yes. actually the only congressman in the fellowship who, you know, I like to say this is not a conspiracy. They don't break the laws. They make them. But Mark Siljander broke them and was uh, indicted and convicted of conspiracy for funneling. Uh, he was redirecting USAID money that was uh, given to an Islamic organization he was uh, first redirecting it to an Afghan warlord who was on the terrorist watch list and uh, and using the fellowship's accounts to do this. And then he traveled with Doug Coe. And again, Doug Coe seems like a nice guy, but he never held a single person accountable. They went to see Omar al-Bashir oh until very recently, the dictator, longtime <laughs> dictator of Sudan, the only sitting head of state to be indicted for war crimes. Um <laughs> And uh, they thought he was a terrific prayer partner. So they came back and started lobbying for the U.S. to lift sanctions on Sudanese oil, which would be great for their other prayer partners in the oil industry. Um, You know, and it's it's just a sort of this endless string of characters. So we tell Mark Mark Siljander appears in, in, uh, in the series. We see Congressman Bob Adderholt. Uh, mm, uh, yeah. who is traveling around Romania preaching the anti-LGBTQ gospel on behalf of the fellowship. Um, they're paying for congressmen uh, to go. And this is, I think, Americans don't always understand how empire works, right? Bob Adderholt. Who's, who's Bob Adderholt? I'd never heard of him. Right. But you go to a little country like Romania, and he is the representative of the United States of America. Yeah. He is the empire come to visit. Um, he has absolute access. And it's why a lot of these congressmen love the fellowship is because it dispatches them to these countries where they get to be the big man, where it's Uganda or Romania, uh, Lebanon, where Senator Tom Coburn mm. uh, got very involved, uh, Sri Lanka, where Mike Pence got involved when he was a congressman. Um, it really you know. puts the, you know, uh, there's so many things on my mind right now. One is I just want to say, 
how amazing I think well done documentary filmmaking is when you can get these clowns to agree to be on camera and just tell you everything. You know, I'm just sitting there, my mouth agape, like this guy is literally just telling us this whole story as if he's proud of it. And he is proud of it, I guess. Were you there for some of those film shoots and like listening to them do tell no, those that, stories? That's all credit goes to director Jesse Moss. It was a brilliant, brilliant documentary filmmaker. And um, uh, the, the way the film happened is Netflix decided that they wanted to, to tell this story. And I was, I have to say, I was skeptical at first. Mm. Um, I said, I don't really, you know, this is not going to be cinema verite. You're not going to be getting right. access. Yeah. Um, and they said, well, you know, we can come up with an innovative documentary sort of film language. Jesse's uh, had done um, a previous film of him is called the overnighters, terrific film uh, um, about a conservative church in North Dakota that becomes a sort of a homeless shelter for men who are traveling there to uh, get into the fracking business and find themselves not, you know, sort of a grapes of wrath situation. There's no work for them. And it's a very sensitive film and it's respectful to that church. And so Jesse was able to say, look, this is the work I've done. I, you know, he's not, neither Jesse nor I were coming at this from some anti-Christian perspective. Um, and uh, that said, you know, they would say, um, the fellowship guys would say, um, is uh, Jeff Charlotte, uh, are you talking to Jeff Charlotte? And Jesse said, yeah, of course I'm talking to <laughs> Jeff course. Charlotte. But I want to hear your point of view as well. And, they gave him some access, not much. He, they wouldn't let him film the prayer breakfast. They wouldn't let him visit their headquarters. Um, they are even in on camera. I don't think we're seeing, I mean, I know we're not seeing full transparency. Um, uh, but yeah, it was a, a, a brilliant feat of documentary filmmaking, which I can take no credit for. That's, that's Jesse Moss. That's awesome. Um, who, you know, but again, that's that's also the kind of investigative stories that we can tell. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's it's Netflix, it's Jesse, it's a, the production company is known as a Jigsaw Productions. They yeah. won the Academy Award for, award for a Taxi to the Dark Side. They made the oh, big yeah. film on Enron. They know how to do investigation and they know how to get people to talk. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, people do love to hear themselves talk and they do love to... Uh, sort of brag about their accomplishments. And I, I always think back to Jesus Camp and, and just how gleeful these folks were yeah. to tell exactly what they were doing. And you're just listening to this going, oh my God, like, do they know this is being recorded? And <laughs> um, all my years of writing about religion was actually when I was trying to report in Santa Maria and, and Miami. That was the only place where I really pretty much got shut out. And I remember the Cuban American sort of saying, well, uh, I was there with my, my, my writing partner at the time, Peter Mansell, and they said, well, we think you, you two might be spies from Castro. And so well, we don't even speak Spanish. And they're like, yeah, Castro's clever like that. That's exactly who he would send. So, and then we never got in, but the fellowship, look, you know, they, they now, they don't like this story. I think I am the only person on earth, including Omar Bashir and all these dictators who they call evil. Uh, they said, you know, you're a member of the family, you're a brother, but you're a bad brother. Um, and uh, I didn't have to go undercover. I went in under my own name. I asked questions when they said horrifying things. I said, that's I never heard of Hitler as a good metaphor for Jesus. I mean, I know you're not Nazis. I know you just mean as a metaphor, but that's a bad metaphor. Um, and uh, yeah. they answered those questions. I published the first book. And even then they were so certain that I just misunderstood 
And so some of them kept talking to me, um, thinking if they could just explain why this concentration of hidden, invisible power uh, in the service of a sectarian religion, which, by the way, is ignorant as hell. I remember one guy says, Jeff, you don't understand. The only reason we talk about Jesus is because he's central to all the religions. And I said, really? This is news. Um, and he says, yeah, sure, Christianity, of course. And he says, Islam. And I'm like, well, no, not central, but yes, important. Yeah. Uh, he's a prophet in Islam. And he says, and and you're a Jew, Jeff, and, and Judaism. I said, well, what role does Jesus play in Judaism? Yeah. And he said, he's the end of your book, right? Oh, my. Um, and this is a man who is a, a minister to any number of of powerful, powerful people. This is what he is teaching them. And I told him, no, no, Jesus is not in our book. <laughs> uh, yeah, not at all. He didn't believe me. He didn't believe me. There's a, this, this profound anti-intellectualism. They're not, these are not the fundamentalists who can quote you, you know, scripture and verse. That doesn't matter. Yeah. That doesn't matter. I love that scene in the, in the, uh, series where you ask one of the brothers, uh, what about Psalm 137? He's like, I, I don't know, man, but I'm sure Jesus will explain it to you when it's time. You know, <laughs> he has no idea what you're talking about. Happy shall he be who taketh and dashes thy little ones against the stones. And I said, you know, what, what's going on with that there? Yeah. Um, is, is this, I mean, explain it to me, you know, I was inviting him to this conversation Any, all, you know, over the years, I remember, uh, then Senator Sam Brownback, very conservative senator from uh, Kansas, who is now Trump's ambassador at large for international religious freedom, a position he helped create wow. through the fellowship. Um, and I remember talking to him about he's a really fierce anti-homosexuality advocate. And I prepared for this conversation. Uh, I talked to some biblical scholars. I, 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 I can't read the original languages. so I really wanted to have it right. I went and I was prepared. And he said, I, you know, I'm not familiar with any of that. I'm not familiar with any of that. Mm. And I said, well, then and how, did, how did you come to these fierce uh, anti-gay views? He says, you know, Jesus just put it on my heart. Wow. I can't believe that, you know, this comes up again in the book and in the series where they're having, these are grown men in suits and ties talking to each other about, you know, domestic policy, foreign policy, and then all of a sudden someone says, you know, it was just our Jesus time, or we talked about Jesus, you know, and I'm like, I'm almost bursting out laughing watching it, and there's not a stitch of comedy in it for them. Like, I can't imagine these grown men talking to each other in this way, switching between things that are real and things that are so fictional I mean, even if Jesus was a real person, and obviously there's a whole religion about him and all of that, it's real. But to refer to Jesus in this way, put, putting something on your heart, it's, it's I, in my mind, I'm imagining two senators talking and, and one of them says to the other, well, you know, the, the, the tooth fairy visited me last night and just told me that to vote against this bill, you know, and I just don't understand why people don't just laugh them out of the room. But I guess it's just the tradition or something. There's an infantilism about it and a way in which I think what the fellowship offers to the powerful is um, uh, it offers a lack of accountability, right? Mm -hmm. the, the reason you do things is because God wants you to. So you get together in your prayer cell and, um, uh, you know, um, it's the ultimate maybe, excuse. Uh, 
center brown back is is one he's been invited to uh join the um you know the board of some sort of sketchy organization that has to do with uh central asian oil and he's not sure if he should be doing it and another guy says you know i think i'm hearing from god that he wants you to do this he says he does okay and, I, and it always works out, and I'm just a tool for God. So, so I'm never responsible for my own desire for power. I'm never saying, look, you know, I think I should be in charge because I have good ideas. I never do that. No, it's not me. It's not me. I didn't do any of this. Mm. Um, and it's a way of letting them off the hook because nobody, look, nobody besides Dick Cheney and Mitch McConnell wants to be evil. Um, and I mean that, yeah. not joking. Remember Dick Cheney sort of said, you know, oh, I think yeah, he he's... even compared himself to Darth Vader at one point, right? Yeah, There's not very many people who have the willpower just to say, I will sit here in the darkness because I think this is the right thing to do to make the decisions. <laughs> Everybody wants to feel like they're doing the, the right thing. Well, I'd like to feel like I'm doing the right thing and I'd like to uh, um, uh, do well. But what's that, that evangelical saying? Uh, doing well by doing good. You know, I'd like to make money. Yeah. Um, and there's a sort of a, a kind of um, circular cronyism. Mm. There's a crude term for that. Um, uh, yeah. and, and the fellowship um, where each person is sort of stroking the ego, as it were, of the other. <laughs> um, yeah. And absolving them from the hard work of saying of, of being accountable for why you're making the decisions that you're making. Um, the decision is going to benefit you. Um uh, but really, you're just doing it because God wants you to. They're under no illusions. They don't think that Trump is a believer and so on. Right. But they don't they care. Right. The Trump vernacular. But Trump is a guy who thinks like that. What's good for him is good for the world. Yeah, it's the ultimate way to let yourself off the hook, to sugarcoat, you know, or moralize about anything that you want to do. And I keep coming back to what you said in my mind earlier about... Um, the status quo, keeping things the way they are, consolidating power, just keeping going um, and not having to apologize for anything, that everything is the way it's supposed to be because God put these people here to accomplish this and it may look bad and may, it may even be bad at certain <clears throat> at certain junctures, but, but God is working it out. It's all going to be fine. So, yeah, Doug dies two years ago, right? And... I don't know how yeah. long he had been sort of sidelined. Maybe his did his age push him sort of out of leadership prior to his death? Um, and and at what point does someone else have to step in? And how is it doing in his absence? It's I actually I think I think a lot of I mean this is speculation, but I think um, the documentary is in some ways possible because. The organization, the movements in flux. I mean, since its foundation, founding in 1935, it had only two leaders. Right. Um, uh, founder of this man named Ibram Baridi, and then Doug Coe, who took over after a leadership struggle in the late 1960s and was not the most obvious man. There was many more sort of accomplished and distinguished figures, but Coe was, uh, for all his gentleness, was a pretty savvy and ruthless politician and uh, led the thing for decades. And I think there was, uh, I mean, back when I was doing my reporting, the assumption was that uh, uh, his sons um, uh, would would be taking over after him. And this caused some consternation as one senior uh, fellowship 
member told me um, David Coe. He says, you know, people understand that David Coe is a, this is the man who, who said, told, gave the, the, the story of King David and said, what if I heard you rape three little girls? They understood that David Coe was maybe a little too out there. Um, <laughs> and there was different factions within the fellowship. And so I think you sort of see that actually in the documentary. I mean, again, mm-hmm. this is the transparency so they're not going to give us. I was able to do the reporting I did because they had dumped 600 boxes of documents at Evangelical Wheaton College um, that you know, brought me through the decades. I could see everything, wow. but those, I obviously can see the documents right now. We see a, a former Congressman, Zach Womp. I think he's sort of one of the leadership contenders. We see a man, especially involved with Maria Butina, the, uh, the Russian agent a guy named Doug Burley, who's been there a long time oh, yeah. man in Russia. And he is sort of a contender for the leadership. There's some other figures who didn't agree to talk, um, and each one has a sort of uh, a vision for where the fellowship should be. And I, it, what's interesting, I think, is that, um, you know, part of the power of Doug Coe was he really needed no public validation. Mm. And if you can do that, you have a lot of it, you know, the more invisible you can make your organization, yeah. you like to say, the more influence you'll have. Um, the fact is, most political figures can't live with that. So who's going to who's going to win? Who's going to come out on top? I think that's actually still up for grabs. And mm. I think this documentary is going to become a factor in that because um, it's going to put a lot of sunlight on them. So we're running out of time here. And I just have one final sort of question sort of geared to our listeners. Like what is I mean, I think it's safe to say anyone listening to this podcast whether they're atheist or still Christian or, or whatever, is horrified by this story and what's hap- been happening for 80 plus years. What is there anything or what should individual citizens be doing to combat this? Is there anything that we can do besides like shake our fists at our computer screens and, and post on Facebook? Or what, what, what can we be doing to push back against this, this craziness? I mean, I don't think there's any sort of special tricks. I think the, the, and I think a lot of people are on this page right now. It used to be, I think people thought, well, we live in a democracy and they would speak of democracy as something you just have, mm. um, as opposed to what more and more people are realizing is some democracy is something, you know, you've got to get up and bake it fresh every day. You've yeah. got to make democracy. And if you don't, you will lose it. And, you know, now it's more visible to everybody in a way that was to all sorts of communities, communities of color for a long time, the ways in which democracy wasn't real in America. You've got to get up and make democracy. And I don't want to say uh, get involved and vote. You've got to be more savvy about it. We need to hold our leaders accountable Mm. in a way that we've been reluctant to. And that means also challenging not just the right wingers. It's easy. Yeah. To you know, look at Trump, uh, it's harder to look at, um, you know, it was harder for us to look at Obama and say, Obama, why are you going to the national prayer breakfast? Yeah. Um, you know, these are the folks who are sponsoring the kill the gays bill. And yeah. so actually what he did was he went and he denounced the kill the gays bill. Well, that's good. But maybe we shouldn't be augmenting the power of such organizations. Let's start asking those questions on the local level, on the national level. Mm. Um, let's start looking at the ways in which, you know, my, my second book on this, uh, C Street, 
published in 2010. I'm not a political pundit. I don't do predictions. One time, though, I got it right. I said, the end of 2010, I said, okay, um, these, uh, these guys, Mark Sanford, John Ensign, family politicians who've been in sex scandals. So they're not going to the White House. But maybe in 2016, it'll be a little-known Indiana congressman named Mike Pence. Mm. Well, I didn't get quite right. I was off by uh, uh, one seat. He's not in the Oval Office. He's right next to it. Um, <laughs> and and I think we, you know, it's easy for us to pay attention to, as we must, to um, to Iran, to North Korea, to the kids in cages on the borders, and and we ignore the ways in which fundamentalists like Ben Carson are transforming HUD, the way all the mid-level fundamentalist appointees are transforming the Department of Interior, the mm. Department of Energy, Betsy DeVos uh, at the Department of Education, um, and putting people in government who will be there long after Trump leaves. That's the level which we need to be paying attention to. So yeah. You hold your politicians accountable. That does mean holding the press accountable too, and saying, "Why aren't you reporting on this?" Right. Um, we need we need deeper questions. Well, thank you for all that you've done. I can't even imagine the number of hours that you've spent on both books and now the documentary series that you were so instrumental in in being a part of. And um, I, I can't wait for folks to see this and for it to circulate on the internet and for people to start talking about this in a fresh way. It's definitely easier to invite someone to watch five hours of television than to, you know, read, you know, 800 pages. Um, and it's good television. It's entertaining. This is, this is, it this is. is not your high school educational film. This is a story. It really is. Tune in. Tune in. August 9. August 9. Uh, and I think uh, that might be the day that this podcast comes out. That's my goal anyway. So uh, I'm excited for it. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time and uh, best of luck in everything you're working on. Thank you, Ryan. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Jeff doesn't do very many interviews, so I feel very lucky to be able to talk with him about this on the eve of the Netflix release. I hope you will watch the Netflix series and buy Jeff's books, The Family and C Street, especially. Even though they're nine plus years old, the information in them reads like breaking news. I went back and read a few chapters of The Family in preparation for this conversation, and I felt like I was reading it again for the first time. Even though some of the senators and members of Congress are no longer in office, they are still, most of them, very active in other areas of politics and the fellowship, and it's... um, It's just as important as it ever was when Jeff first wrote it. Of course, Jeff gets into so many more details in the books, far more than they have time to cover in the Netflix series. But the Netflix series also um, stretches up to the present day, the election of Donald Trump and some of the Russian interference in our elections and so forth. So, uh, boy, the the combination of the Netflix series and the books is is really a powerful one. Thank you so much for tuning in and sharing a portion of your day with me. If you want to learn more about the Life After God community and all the things we're doing, there are a lot of ways that you can do that, starting with our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you'll see all the links to our social media and the Patreon page, which is one of the main ways I stay in touch with fans of the show, both those who are patrons and those who aren't. So follow me on Patreon, whether you can support the show financially or not, and you'll get updates from me whenever I post. 
I can't emphasize enough how grateful I am for all of your support, for listening, sharing, writing in, and participating in the conversation. If you have any questions or you want to be more involved in the Life After God community, please email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I'm especially grateful to the Life After God producer, Christopher. Thank you so much for your support, friend. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 